collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. I'm really excited to be here with Dr. Sonia Rosen. Um, good morning, Sonia. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. We met at a Theater of the Oppressed workshop some years ago, and uh, we've kind of like stayed in the loop with each other, and I'm uh, really excited to welcome you on the show today. So I know that you're a scholar of youth activism and youth movement building and a professor of education at Penn. But you also had an ankle injury recently. So this month, the month where we look at health systems, and I invited you on the show both as a kind of activist scholar and also as a patient to talk to us a little bit about your injury and how you're doing. Um, tell us a little bit about, like, of course, your ankle injury doesn't define you. So let's talk a little bit more about kind of who you are, what you're up to in the world, and what you're passionate about. It feels like it's defined me for the last two months, but... So I'm a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania, where I am also a sort of as, as the director of inquiry and reflective practice in the independent school teaching residency program in the graduate school of education. So I've been doing teacher education for a long time. Also am a scholar of social movements and specifically I've done a lot of work around youth activism and now some more recent work around teacher activism. So I sort of integrate that into the work that I do with teachers as well, with, with pre-service and in-service teachers. So I was a former teacher. I used to be a teacher in New York and Philadelphia at different times. And I've taught middle school, high school, and adult education, as well as university level. But I'm also not just my profession. I'm also a, an Arab-American woman, identifies cisgender. I am in a relationship with my husband. Together, we have three kids ages 10 and a half all the way down to three and a half. And so I'm a mom and most of my time right now is being a mom, I would say. Being, being a mom and covering from the ankle injury is a lot of my time because of this COVID-19 pandemic. We have, we're sitting here with our kids quite a lot. In fact, one of my daughters is in the background drawing on the bed. So one of the things I know about you is that you have a real passion inequity and systems change and activism. Could you tell us a little bit more, like, and that a lot of that sprouted from your experience of during September 11th. So could you share a little bit more what that was like for you as Arab American? I was living in New York City during September 11th. And at the time I was a teacher, I was a public school teacher teaching ninth grade. And prior to that, I had studied Africana studies and sort of started to understand racism from a more systemic perspective. And eventually that led into me also being introduced to 
WBAI, which was a Pacifica station, and started to really understand systems and inequity and power from a more understanding how it works at an institutional and systemic level. And I got into anti-globalization organizing and then sort of did a lot of media organizing. And at the time I was also a teacher. And then September 11th happened and we were two miles away from the World Trade Center, just straight up Sixth Avenue. So I was at Sixth Avenue and 22nd Street. When the planes hit, it came out on the radio and I happened to be in the office at the time doing some, it was my prep period and I was doing some copies. And I remember really clearly the, one of the secretaries saying, oh, it's those Arabs. It's a, and nobody had mentioned Arabs at all on the, on the radio yet. She just decided it was Arabs. So already it was like, there's going to be a lot of anti-Arab sentiment. So I remember actually going out to the corner and watching the towers burning from Sixth Avenue. You could just see it straight down. At the time I was living in New York, my family was in Philly. And my cousin, he was here, he had immigrated from Morocco and was taking flight lessons, like to be a pilot. He was trying to learn to be a pilot. And a few days before September 11th happened, he actually stopped his flight lessons for a different reason. And we were really worried at that point because there were Moroccans on the plane and nobody knew what was happening. It was very clear that law enforcement was not worrying too much about people's constitutional rights. And we just didn't know what was going to happen in our family. I think he got a visit from the FBI as well. I can't remember very clearly that part of it, but I was really, really scared. And my family was really scared already. Like immediately there was violence against Arabs um, in New York and elsewhere. And even against people who were being perceived as Arabs. I approached my principal and I told him that I needed a few days off. I needed to go back to Philadelphia and just be with my family for a few days. And I explained why. So he knew everything about my identity and took those days off. He let me go. But then after that, experienced um, really months of harassment. It was really horrible. It was really awful to have to experience. The principal and the vice principal were in my classroom constantly. The Board of Ed uh, had instituted a policy of the Pledge of Allegiance being said. And every morning in all the schools. I didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance because I'm not a nationalist and I, I don't believe in pledging allegiance to uh, nation states, I'll say. So I wouldn't say it. My students said it. I let them do whatever they want. The vice principal was in my classroom screaming at me to say the Pledge of Allegiance all the time. He harassed me so much. He was misinforming the students. I was a social studies teacher at the time and he was misinforming the students telling them that they had actually had to say the Pledge of Allegiance, that they didn't have a right to not say it. And so I gave them a handout explaining their rights, the Supreme Court cases that upheld their rights to, to opt out of the pledge. I said that they had the choice to do whatever they want. And my students all had been saying the pledge. And then when this, the, sorry, the assistant principal was coming in and harassing me every day, a lot of them started sitting down. So after a while, the entire class was sitting down and not saying the Pledge of Allegiance anymore, not because they had some belief about it, but because they were so appalled at how I was being harassed. I got harassed for sharing articles, like when the United States invaded Afghanistan, I brought in an article for discussion with my Greek class. Yeah, so I brought in an article that was an op-ed about why the U.S. should not invade Afghanistan. It was actually like, even looking back at it now, I mean, it was radical for the time, I guess, because people were like really beating the drum of war at that time. 
But, you know, there was a lot of opposition. Like we were out in the streets. We were millions of us out in the streets in New York and all around the country at the time, you know, saying that we did not want a war. I got harassed about that. Um, they were doing observations of me, you know, like giving me bad observation reports, even though they loved me a few months earlier. I was the team. I've been given uh, the position of ninth grade team leader in my second year there. And they, they were upset that I was wearing, I was wearing like anti-war pins every day on my clothes. And I actually did not even bring this stuff up in in most of my teaching. We were doing a, like a world cultures curriculum that year. Still studying like ancient, it was not even really part of my curriculum. I literally was not actually influencing the students almost at all. What was influencing the students was watching me being harassed, which the students saw how like antagonistic the administration was, the principal and the vice principal were just constantly down my throat. And so that's what actually influenced the students and kind of politicized them, ironically. You used a process called excessing to get rid of me at the end of the first semester of that year. So in January, while our students were on sort of a break, they got rid of me by sort of using the justification that they had. I was actually certified as an English teacher and, and working towards certification in social studies, which was allowed but were able to use the justification that they had too many English certified teachers in the school. And so they accessed me. I think they actually replaced me with somebody who was not certified in social studies too, actually, which was kind of funny. They got rid of me while the students were not in session, while the students were not there. So the students never got to say goodbye to me. I didn't get to say goodbye to my students. And um, it was really purposeful. It was pretty traumatic, actually, having to go into work every day and know that I was going to be harassed. And all my colleagues saw it. I mean, everybody was horrified about it. And I'm still in touch with a lot of those former colleagues today. And they remember that story. It was really awful. And it was very clear that it was racially motivated. And it was very clear that it was politically motivated. I filed a grievance with my union. And when I went into the grievance hearing, the rep that had been assigned to represent me at the time was an Armenian guy. And he actually said to me before the hearing, he was like, look, I'm Armenian. And I feel for you you are right on this. You are totally right. And you should not have been accessed and you should not have been harassed like that. But I want to tell you that this is not the moment. You're going to lose. You're going to lose this and you can keep appealing it as much as you want. And you're going to keep losing. I just want to warn you. I want to prep you for this. And he was right. You know, we went into the hearing and I lost. He, and really what he was talking about is that the political moment, it was not the political moment to critique the, the xenophobic and racist harassment of Arabs and Muslims and anybody who seemed like an Arab or a Muslim in every institution around us. It, it was so pervasive. And he was right. And I actually lost the hearing. I was already in another school at that point where I was not getting harassed by the administration every day. I didn't appeal because actually shortly after that, my brother committed suicide. And so I was just at a point of like grieving and not able to, you know, I had a new trauma, double trauma. It was another trauma on top of that trauma. I didn't have the sort of fight in me at that point. And it was just exhausting. The trauma of being harassed constantly, of being in this world where people like me were being vilified all the time, and also sort of watching any level of rationality in our society unravel was really wild. I didn't have it in me anymore to, to fight for that battle. And I should have shifted to fighting the collective battle, the anti-war fight and 
sort of the broader anti-racist fight. Thank you for so much, like, sharing this experience. Well, first of all, like, I'm in awe of the resilience you showed and, like, so hate that you had, that we live in a world where you had to go through that. And also, I think it's really important, like, your experience has an important lesson right now, because right now we're talking about the vast number of Chinese Americans that are being harassed, like, in their workplaces or on the streets or at home because there's this perception, right, that they caused the virus, as if, you know, they personally started implanting it into people, which is wild, crazy, especially because, you know, health crises happen all the time. We're all connected. The world is one, right? Like, welcome to the global economy. Welcome to a world where people fly and move and are alive, right? So I just wanted to, like, connect that for a minute to all the conversations we're talking about in terms of Chinese Americans. But there's something else I just wanted to uplift is this, this piece around, we've talked about this before, so you may have used kind of different words when we talked about it prior than right now, but I remember you once telling me that you at some point, and you shared that part of it was your brother's suicide, right? But like you lost the will to fight your own battle, but the experience of harassment kind of fueled this interest in fighting the collective fight and fighting the system. You had begun to say part of it was the anti-war protest. Tell me a little bit about like that point of tension between like enough of this, but let's shift to that. Because you didn't turn within inward, right? Some people turn with inward and take it all in to the point where it completely immobilizes them. And instead what you did is you got reactivated in terms of your ability to fight with others. Tell me just a little bit about that point of tension. The collective fight in many ways is also, like I shouldn't draw such a distinction because the collective fight is also many people's little fights, right? That like, especially at the time, just like what we're seeing right now with Asian Americans, we see that it's not just Chinese people being harassed, right? It's anybody being perceived as, some, as Asian, you know? And so what that means in people's minds is anybody who looks at all East Asian or Southeast Asian. Just like that's what we're seeing now. I mean, at the time it was anybody who was perceived as Arab, Muslim, something like Arab or Muslim, Sikhs were being harassed and victimized and harmed. It was a broad category of folks that got included in that. And so it was many people's little fights. I was lucky that my, it didn't cause me physical harm. Many people experienced physical harm at that time. I remember the amount of attacks just on people, just like we're seeing now with people who are being perceived as Chinese, like physical attacks on folks. So I do think the small fights are important. I think that those little fights matter. Where it was hard was that I just like lost the will to keep up with a fight that I knew was a losing battle. The Armenian dude who told me, you're not going to win this was right. I wasn't going to win that. It was exhausting. It was too much just to have to like keep fighting. It was so many steps you had to take and having to show up over and over again, just for myself, for that battle that I knew I was going to lose. The battle that I felt was more winnable was really the collective battle, the battle of the bigger war, maybe. I hate using war analogies because it sucks because it was really an anti-war fight. But I do think there's something about feeling like if I was with other people fighting for something bigger and fighting for something that was going to affect more people then that felt more powerful to me. Being in the streets with a million people felt like a really powerful stance to take 
because when you're standing side by side with others in the same fight, the strategy that capitalism uses to divide and conquer us doesn't work so well when everybody is visibly together, when people are visibly saying, we all don't agree with this. And you know, there's this concept of this Gramscian concept of hegemony and hegemony is like the idea that there's these systems of power and we sort of buy into them and they only work because we all buy into them, right? Well, in the same way that we uphold hegemony because we all agree to it, we, we agree to our own oppression, we agree to exist and function within these systems that keep us divided, that keep us, that perpetrate violence on all of us, but especially in very strong ways on particular groups of people who are more marginalized, who are more vulnerable, right? We believe in the fiction that the systems have power and we don't. That's exactly. the fiction of hegemony. Yeah, exactly. We have no power. Systems have all the power and we can't change them. Exactly. And the systems only work because we agree to them. There's no physical way that a system could work without people agreeing to uphold it. There's no infrastructure in the system that on its own creates power. So we actually, so in the same way that we uphold hegemony, we have a lot of power to resist it. We have a lot of power to come together and agree and agree to not agree with the system. When I am in a protest, when I am organizing behind the scenes with people, when I see how many people can resist a system and refuse to abide by the hegemonic structures, by the oppressive logic of the system, that feels powerful to me. That actually, it feels just as powerful as the way it feels when everybody's agreeing to perpetrate oppression. As a social movement scholar, I talk a lot about this. Doing organizing work, working against a system that has been so powerfully hegemonic, there's a lot of risk taking involved in it. But the only reason why people take that risk, there's two things that drive that risk. One of those things is the idea that is the idea that there's actually hope for change, that we actually think that there might be some possibility of making change. And the other is the desperation of needing the change. So on the one hand, we don't take the risk unless we see the need for change as so urgent and so necessary to prevent human suffering or to make a better world or whatever it is that we see as the need for change. The healthcare system is the good example that we're gonna talk about today is killing thousands and thousands of people every year, literally killing people because we don't give people healthcare as a human right. So there is that need, there's a desperate, desperate need for change. But then people also don't act, they might feel a need, but that will turn into just like desolation or a sense of like self-harm, or it turns into all kinds of things. We see people who see that, that desperation can turn into other things. But when we can combine that with hope for change, when we can combine that with a sense of like possibility, then it becomes collective action because then we can come together and say, you know, we're not actually agreeing to this anymore. You may think that this is the system that works, you people in power, but we who are experiencing the effects of that system refuse to agree with it anymore. And also we who care about the other people who are experiencing the effects of that system. So for the anti-war movement, we don't want this war because it creates horrible experiences for people here. It relies on the xenophobia that has to be produced in order to support the war. And also we don't want this war because we don't want people killing other people and dying you know, elsewhere. And we don't want you to do that to the planet. And there's a sense of like hope that's embedded in that. 
that feels much more powerful than going and fighting, using my teacher's union to sort of fight this fight that at that moment was not possible to fight. Some fights were possible with the teacher's union. The union was very important and it was a really effective tool in many ways. But that was not the fight in that moment that I was going to win. Whereas I felt like joining together with other people to fight the big fight felt much more hopeful. And even though we didn't really, we didn't stop the war, I do think it could have been worse. I think that resistance was meaningful in the same way like we saw in Vietnam, that it took a long time to end the war, but the resistance was meaningful and it had an impact. It had an impact on all that. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I want to ask you like this personal question. Feel free to not respond if you don't want to talk about it because it's really personal. I think it, it connects well with our health systems. So your brother's suicide. I mentioned earlier how in the face of a world that becomes harassing and targeting, some people like you are able to be hurt, be overwhelmed, but also get reactivated towards collective action. Like some people turn within, pack it all in and, and succumb to it. And that looks a lot different for different people. But do you think the external pressures of the United States in that time, in particular, the harassment and the targeting of Arab Americans, like impacted your brother's choice? Actually, no, I've thought about this a lot. I'm not sure. He was like sort of a computer geek. He was like into Linux and stuff like that. And there was a lot of weird like discussions online at that time of like Linux users in like, I don't know if it's called the dark web or something like that. I'm like throwing around words that might not be accurate, but, and I think through that community, he became kind of a libertarian. Like he had these weird political views that I did not subscribe to and still find very problematic. So I do think that he obviously suffered from depression. That's a physical state that he was in. That is a, a mental illness that would have existed separate from anything. And it ran in our family and was not getting the mental health support that he needed. And part of the reason why I would say is because of his sort of libertarian views of like, government should not be involved in things and people should be independent and should be able to sort of function on their own. That sort of led him to not seek out mental health support and resist when other people offered him mental health support. And also I think it gave him a sense of hopelessness because if you believe that like things are screwed up, I mean, he did see the world as really screwed up and he definitely had a critique of the war. I mean, he saw it as very problematic, but if that's your belief and you, and you take a libertarian perspective, then organizing really isn't your solution. He didn't necessarily have a lot of hope for what the world could be because thought like individuals should sort of just make their way on their own. I don't know that it was the necessarily the specifics of anti-Arab harassment. I'm not sure what he felt about that. I, I never had a conversation with him about that. But I definitely think sort of watching the world be so just bad in so many ways was hard for him. And I think that that was how a lot, you know, we saw a lot of people with mental health challenges at the time. There was a lot of mental health issues as the U.S. entered into two wars and as the world became less and less safe. Even if my brother didn't identify it, I'm sure he, he was sort of feeling a lot of that. I think in moments of crisis that happens. I've noticed watching things progress, watching sort of neoliberalism become even more of a defining feature of how so neoliberal capitalism being the logic of many institutions and different sort of subsystems within our bigger system in the US. 
over the last 20 years, that's gotten more acute. We've come to a place where our lives are more precarious. We don't have the safety nets that we need. We are often, we see this with coronavirus right now, right? With COVID-19 pandemic, people lose their jobs and then what? There's nothing. Well, just people's mental health is threatened. So that's, I just wanted to like highlight is that there's kind of this fiction, in particular people on the right, right, who see community organizers as troublemakers, right? This yeah. is actually a, one of my cousins has said to me, they knew Obama was a troublemaker the moment they found out he had been a community organizer, because community organizers are the epitome of uh, troublemakers. Maybe some of our listeners are uh, Republican or on the far right, but I would be pretty surprised. But like, even if we consider that critique, the assumption underneath that critique is that if you just shut up your collective action, we would all be fine. Everything would be okay. And actually, I love what you're highlighting is that actually folks who have those conservative beliefs, it puts a higher stress on their mental health because they don't have an out, like not having a collective action outlet. We don't know for sure, but perhaps it may have been for your brother, just puts a higher stress like mental health things may have been stressors have may have been underneath and i just want to link this back to conversation around health and systems and also like the kind of harassment that you endured as a teacher also stressed mental health so even without the collective action like that's a tremendous amount of stress to put on you on anyone to put on you in particular and but to put on anyone and so the fact that we live in a society that is so unequal and so inequitable and so discriminatory actually increases the amount of our healthcare expenses and the pressure on our healthcare system, which comes back to the point about us being a commodity in a capitalist Absolutely. environment, right? So in a capital environment, the fact that our mental health is stressed in the face of discrimination is actually a good thing. Like the health care industry gets to make more money off of it. But in a single payer health system where the government is, is in charge of health and where you're trying to decrease costs, then you know discrimination is kind of like the first thing to lower to improve people's health. I just wanted to bring that out and so we can like come back to the topic of health. And thank you for pointing out your personal experience because I think that brought that out like really, really clearly. My research on youth activism, one of the really key findings is that when young people participate in organizing groups in really sort of meaningful, deep ways, they actually start to develop identities that make them really resilient and make them be able to shift how they're thinking about the systems that are affecting them. So they move away from sort of the way capitalism trains us to think is that if there's something wrong, it's because we did something wrong. If I'm unemployed, it's because I can't get a job. Or if I am sick, it's because I didn't take care of myself or something like that. Whereas when they participate in organizing work, we have what's called collective action frames, which are like ways of thinking about the world that help us to mobilize together, that mobilize a lot of people towards a bigger systemic change. And so those collective action frames shift their thinking to thinking about systems as being the problem. And they get these networks that support their thinking and support their development and support their self-care and their well-being. So even though organizing work is actually tremendously stressful, in many ways it makes people more resilient and less inclined to do the self-blame and the sort of personal responsibility narrative. 
take on the personal responsibility narrative that is fed to us by a capitalist system. In so many ways, actually, organizing for, say, something like single-payer healthcare is actually a really important way to get to a place where we can protect our collective well-being. It's mind-blowing, actually, you know, to think about that. Tell us about, so you had an injury recently. Yes. From a different perspective, which is the perspective of health systems. So tell us a little bit about your injury and what did that show or expose to you around health systems in terms of what you saw and the lens you already have of inequality? Yeah, so my injury happened in a split second. I was in a tumbling class. You tumble? I mean, I try to tumble. I don't tumble right now. (laughs) I love it. And I I do circus. I've been doing circus. I didn't know that. Dr. Rosen, you're amazing. I love circus. I started doing aerial for a long time, and then I uh, shifted also to, I added on hand balancing and then tumbling as well. But my tumbling is like very basic tumbling. But I was doing a front tuck off of a trampoline and landed funny. And then I just in a split second, severely dislocated and uh, my ankle and broke two bones. So sort of looked down and my ankle is at a 90 degree angle and it was not pretty. Ouch. Um, It hurt a lot. Yeah. So I waited like I would say 45 minutes or something for an ambulance or something like that. And then sitting, laying on the floor of this gym. Then loaded into the ambulance and rushed to the emergency room. And I'm super privileged because I work at the University of Pennsylvania and get really good benefits for an American. So I didn't worry about calling an ambulance. It wasn't even a question to have an ambulance call. Mm-hmm. I asked for an ambulance to be called. And I didn't worry about going into the ER. And I didn't worry about whatever came next. But I went to the ER got meds finally. So I waited probably about an hour for meds and then was told that I had some broken bones and eventually told that I had to get surgery. And so a week later I got surgery on my ankle. I got auric surgery and it basically is where they, they put screws and a metal plate. So I have two screws in my tibia and um, six screws Mm. on my fibula. And so now I consider myself a bionic woman now. So (laughs) (laughs) who tumbles or will tumble? Well, yeah, eventually in August, I'm allowed to go back. Apparently it was a lot of pain. It was very interesting. So this experience gave me a lot of insight into different aspects of our healthcare system. But one of them was the pain management part because of the opioid crisis. And there's a lot of attention on the opioid crisis. Doctors are very hesitant to give pain medicines to people. So I actually came home from the hospital, ibuprofen and acetaminophen. And I was feeling my bones move against each other because it was so unstable. My fractures were so unstable because of the dislocation. And so I was in massive pain and had to actually get pain meds from several nurse and doctor friends. Like people just gave me their pain meds. Other friends just gave me extra pain meds that they had. And consulting, like I'm, because I'm a middle-class person, I have a lot of friends in the healthcare profession and I have a network of people that I was able to draw on. So I talked to a doctor friend and a nurse friend who helped me with pain management. Then after my surgery, I talked to another nurse friend who helped me with pain management. I sort of worked outside of the system. And this is a person who has like amazing uh, insurance, you know, have to worry about going to a doctor, but it was so hard to get good pain management help. Had follow-ups with my surgeon since then, and also 
had follows with my primary care physician and with now I've been doing PT for the last uh, few weeks, probably the last three weeks now. So I've had amazing access to everything. But what's interesting to me is that this experience, the second you break these bones, especially this particular injury, everybody comes out of the woodwork who's had that injury. And so all these friends of mine have come out of the woodwork. And I also have joined Facebook groups of people who had similar injuries. It was recommended to me to do that. And it's really been a lifeline. But I have seen now so many people's stories that were not as privileged as mine. And even with the privilege that I have, I'll be paying about, I have a $1,200 deductible limit on my health insurance. I'll meet the $1,200 deductible just with the other stuff that I spent this year plus this. But I've gone to the emergency room twice now for this, had surgery, stayed overnight in the hospital once, had an ambulance. ambulance trip. And it's just sort of brought into relief. I mean, I've always felt like the system's messed up because my husband's from Canada. We have family in France. So uh, you were saying that you have exceptional health care, that through an ambulance visit, uh, sorry, calling an ambulance in the beginning, um, a surgery, two hospital stays, an overnight stay, um, and lots of physical therapy. Basically, you're walking out just with your deductible, which was like $1,200. And that this experience, though, has had you connect with a bunch of other people who have had your exact same injury. So could you share a little bit, like, what has, what was the pathway of people that you noticed who had the same injury and didn't have your level of insurance? So things I noticed. So me, I had to wait, like, 45 minutes for an ambulance ride. It's really painful. I live in Philadelphia, which is like, you know, there's doctor, hospitals everywhere. I should not wait that long for an ambulance ride. It should have been like- You said 45 minutes? Yeah, something like that waiting. And then, you know, another, you know, 20 minutes by the time they loaded me in and got me to a hospital, which by the the way, the hospital is like 10 minutes away from where I was. You know, it was a really short time. That is privilege compared to what other people have experienced. I had one friend tell me that they broke their ankle and could not afford- to go to the hospital in an ambulance and they were uninsured. I actually, like this hasn't hit me before because I have the privilege of being super healthy. We pay for the ambulance if we call it. Yeah. That's the first like insanity of the U.S. healthcare system. I was raised a part of my life in Italy. So like this stuff is just brings tremendous cognitive dissonance for me. All right. So we pay for the ambulance, folk. I didn't even have to think twice about the idea of having an ambulance when my ankle was at a 90 degree angle from my, from my leg, right? Like this other friend couldn't call an ambulance because they wouldn't have been able to pay for an ambulance. You know, they ended up, they told me a story of walking up and down stairs to get frozen peas to put on their ankle and then stayed overnight with that injury and then called a friend the next day to bring them, not even a hospital, an urgent care center because they could not afford to go to a hospital for this ridiculous injury. I mean, having had this injury in an hour for pain meds and for my ankle to be reduced, reduced is like when they they put it back into position, which was a ridiculous experience. I mean, I still have trauma from that. I've been having flashbacks from that experience. This person waited like 15 hours or something. I don't even know how overnight, you know, passed out, (laughs) slept overnight and waited that long to be seen. Other people I know 
now met online have said things like, I can't afford to go to PT because I don't have health insurance. Does anybody have any exercises you can share that you've been doing? Can you imagine like the only thing I do, the only place I go outside because of this COVID-19 pandemic, the only place I go outside of my house right now is PT and my surgeon appointment. And you know, the reason is because I don't want to end up with a permanent disability because of a broken ankle, you know, which is possible when you don't do the right, yeah. do the things you're supposed to do. You can end up with permanent problems, you know, permanent pain. And so PT is even a privilege. Yeah. Even just being able to go to PT is a privilege. And the fact that I have healthcare that has a, a deductible limit is a privilege because PT, if, when I pay for it, I pay $35 a session. I'm going to get to a point. I have 12 weeks of PT supposed to be going two to three times. How many $35 co-pays that is. I'm going to hit my $1,200 deductible. If I didn't have that in my last insurance, I didn't have that. I used to work for Arcadia University and I had like not as good health insurance because it's not as wealthy of a university. If I was in that circumstance, I would just keep paying $35 for a really long time, you know? That's a copay. The people who have said, I can't go to PT because I can't afford it, have to pay like $100 each time they go to PT or something like that. It's like some ridiculous amount of money. So thank you for the comparison. That's really helpful. I want to shift gears and like talking about kind of the systems at a wider level. So uh, I know you're an advocate for a single payer tax system. Uh, Sorry, single payer health system. And um everything you're describing is pure insanity to me. Like it's insanity to me that people defend this. Yeah, exactly. It passes for health system. So here's one of my pet peeves that I'm going to lay out. Go for it. Nowhere in the United States of America do you give a credit card first and find out the price of something later. Yes. Yes. So that only happens in what passes for the health system. It drives me crazy. So I have not so great healthcare. I'm self-employed, yeah. so I do marketplace, and I've only had like healthcare since the Affordable Care Act. Until then, it was all alternative remedies and you know lots of twisted ankles cured at home. So I'm the frozen peas gal you were talking about. Luckily, never never broken injury, but uh, I definitely was the frozen peas gal. Like nowhere in the United States is it acceptable to give a credit card number or a payment of whatever and be told, well, then we'll figure it out later. And it drives me crazy in particular because I know that, you know, some universities, including like UPenn, right, for some services, they'll have like a different chart. Like if you pay with health insurance, they'll charge you at one rate. And if you pay out of pocket, they'll charge you at a different rate. That's usually lower. But there's no way to know. It's a freaking gamble. Like there I am, I'm standing in front of the office, of the health person and I'm like sitting there and they're like so which one do you want to do do you want to process this with or without insurance and I'm like well how much is it going to be with insurance and they're like well we can't tell you until it goes through so I'm sitting there doing so I'm a deep meditator and intuition person like I'm listening into the wisdom of my body okay body should I charge this to my health insurance should I not charge it to my health insurance the total woo-woo thing to do right like I'm zenning in and like okay I trust the wisdom of my body I know the right answer to this question which way is it cheaper it's insane that I'm doing that I have a freaking PhD I have to like go back to my meditation experiences to figure out whether I'm going to charge something by the healthcare system or not 
anyway, there, and I've also kind of outed myself on how I make decisions in the face of uncertainty, but like, that's totally wild. And my parents are in Italy. I lived in Italy for 15 years. So I was under the Italian healthcare system for 15 years. Yeah. And I'll like never forget, first of all, when my father had cancer, we had zero bills. Yeah. Zero. Oh, actually, he did see a private surgeon separately. So he did have this $250 bill like once a month. He wanted that specific surgeon in the way that the single payer tax system works. Like you get who's in the hospital when you go to the hospital. If you want a specific person, you want to keep working with them, you have to see them privately. Although generally when you go to private visit, they tell you when you're at the hospital. So you don't get the hospital charges, right? You get the private visit charges. Yeah. So my father, my guess, uh, in 15 years of being a cancer survivor, he may have spent about like $2,000 in private visits. That's my guess. And probably like another maybe 1000 or 2000 in like medicine. We have kind of a version of what America would call a copay. But my dad also got that money. My father received a $600 a month pension because he was on chemo. $600 a month, you don't live on, on in Italy. But it's the concept that instead of getting charged, so you're not a commodity. And I'll never forget when I walked him out of the hospital, like we had a little bit of a scare some, maybe three years ago. And I walked him out of the hospital and I saw the cashier. I walked up to the cashier and I was like, so what exactly do you guys do here? And he's like, we give out vouchers if you parked in the parking lot. <laughs> so basically, you know, you got money, you either paid for the parking lot or you got a voucher for the parking lot. They like had no exchanges. They couldn't exchange a hundred dollar bill. They only like operated in five and 10 euros, yeah. um, not a hundred euro, right? So only five and 10 euros. Anyway, so there goes my rant. What do you think are the misperceptions that people have? about having a single payer health system? Well, I think one of the misperceptions is the idea of like that. And that's the big thing that everybody says like, well, I like the doctors I have. Now in my phenomenal healthcare that I have, I have really, really good insurance compared to most people in this country. And I don't get a lot of choice. I am capitated to like, when I had to do my PT, I had capitated PT sites. After I gave birth and uh, for my, to my third child and had pelvic floor therapy because stuff gets loose, I had to file for an exception to a capitated PT site because there were no pelvic floor therapists in that capitated PT site. And it took so much time to just get that exception. It took me like a month to finally get the pelvic floor therapy that I needed. So the idea that we suddenly have choice now, but we're going to lose choice in a single payer system is absurd, right? We don't really have a lot of choice right now. Like you said, if you go and you get treated by a doctor who's not covered by your health insurance, you're going to get charged. And sometimes you don't even realize you could be in a hospital that's covered, but a doctor that's not covered. This happens to people all the time. Recently, so I purchased on Marketplace a dental insurance Mm-hmm. that I paid a whole year for because I was waiting to become eligible for major surgery because I knew I needed a crown. Mm-hmm. The insurance was labeled EPPO. And we know in the standard, right, PPO means you get choice. Right, right. After a year and a half of paying these folks, I called them and they're like, no, we don't cover anything out of our network. 
I'm like, your name is EPPO. They're like, yeah, the E in front of it means something different. It means elite PPO. And I'm like, how is that elite? How is it elite? I haven't even gotten reimbursed for a cleaning. Yeah. Because I can only work with people in their network. I've actually like done a, a claim to them on the Better Business Bureau site for this reason. But like, here's another way, place where we have the illusion of choice, right? The name of the plan is one that's supposed to be And yet my choices either work with the people we want to work with and get paid or not. And can I tell you the opposite of that is my in-laws in Canada, when they want to go to a doctor, they go to a doctor of their choice. They just go to a doctor. If they get referred for something, yes, maybe if they get referred for like an MRI or something like that, they're not going to have a choice about where they go or they have limited choices. But I have limited choices too about where I go. Yeah. It's not yeah. where I, this is another piece of it is like, they don't pay a cent when they walk into a place. All of my family who lives in all the countries that they yeah. live in have that. Yeah. If you live in a single player system, you don't think about how much you're going to pay going somewhere. Because our politics of capitalism inform our culture, the way that interacts with health is that the first thought when we get sick is, can I pay for it? Yeah. Exactly. And people who live in single payer health system don't have that. They don't get hurt and wonder, can I afford the ambulance? They call the ambulance, right? They don't get hurt and say, let me wait until tomorrow morning and put frozen peas on this to see if I can avoid a hospital visit. There isn't that shift. For us, it's become so normal, right? For the non-privileged, right? Has become so normal. It's like, okay, first you have to figure it out on your own, and then you figure out. Even a health system we can count on. Yeah, I pay $150 every time I go to the emergency room. So that's a thought. I have to decide, is it worth going to the emergency room? So even with your level of privilege in terms of the access, you you still ask yourself that question. Like, do I want to pay $150 right now? Is it that bad? I have some of the most privilege in this system, and yet it would save me money. Like when I say I want to fight for single payer, not just a fight for other people, it's a fight for myself too, because I spend, spend more money in premiums and in co-pays in a year than I would even if, now single payer systems actually cost less than the current system that we're in right now. So we could actually get more than, we, we could have what Canada has, for less money than our federal government spends. Great point. We're like wrapping up towards the end, which I hate because we're like really heated right now. And let's go with my Freudian slip, which is taxes, right? Well, so what I was going to say is that that, so I could have more than what I have now for less money than I pay anyway, less money than we all pay. But even if the federal government raised my taxes to pay, there's no possible way that they could raise it enough to meet what I already pay now. That's right. As a relatively healthy person, without this injury, I pay more in a year than is worth between my husband's health insurance and mine and covering our kids. And we get phenomenal, we both work for universities. He works for Villanova and I work for Penn. And those are very rich universities that give very good health coverage. And even with that, we pay more in a year than we would if our taxes were raised to a level to get like premium, the best health single payer system money could buy. And that irritates me. Not to mention, I mean, we have to think when we think about single payer, we can't just think about like getting coverage for medical care. We also have to think about what you said earlier, when people are out of work for an injury. I'm out of work right now. I abused FMLA because I work for an employer that has phenomenal leave policies. I could have an extra few months of leave. 
like my surgeon approved me for four months of leave and I could have taken that whole leave if I wanted to. And my employer wouldn't even have blinked an eye and I would not have lost anything. He, I now know people who couldn't take leave. So they had to go back to their like on their feet everyday jobs with a broken ankle, which I cannot even imagine the amount of pain they would be in. Every and I could not, I'm a faculty member at a university. So my job is like a, basically a sitting job and I still could not go back. I couldn't concentrate because I had pain all the time. I keep my leg elevated. We need to also cover in a single payer system, people's have a good medical leave policy. We need to have good caretaker policies because if I had to be alone without people taking care of me, that would have been horrific as well. This is like really basic stuff in most societies. This is not something we should have to fight for. It's ridiculous to me that we are saying that we should have to fight for people to have healthcare. And the other thing that irritates me about this system, I have to just add one other thing. Go for it. Nobody should be profiting off of other people's, like off of other people's lack of well-being, right? Insure is ridiculous to me that we have a system where insurance companies literally profit off of me not being able to get the care that I need. That's absurd. There should never be a middleman. The idea that we put so much money into this sort of middleman billing system, even within hospitals and doctor's offices, and then on the insurance company side, it is outrageous that people are profiting off of denying claims. Like that is literally what insurance companies do. We have a doc whose job it is to essentially deny claims. That's right. Because he has a mandate from his insurance company employer who they profit off not allowing you to get the care that you need. And doctors have to spend time trying to convince these people to not reject our claims. Right. That's what their job is. Like it's part of their doctor's job to actually be on the phone with insurance companies. That's the other thing that's completely insane coming from like the Italy system. Like if I asked a doctor in Italy, do you like ever talk to an insurance company? They'd be like, no. There is a process to check. Like there is a process of feedback to like, you have to have some level of evidence to subscribe like a certain number of exams, but you don't have to sit there and literally convince people. Let's talk a little bit about organizing. So, I mean, other than the obvious, right? So Bernie Sanders has been talking about having the ability to have a single payer health system. I would argue one of the reasons why it's hard sometimes for people to resonate with his message is because we think of systems as unchangeable. Like we forget that actually a group of people made this up mm-hmm. and people can change it. Yeah. Right? And I think it's easier for us to resonate with like, lower my taxes. It's a simple thing, right? right. Resonate with, no, you can change this whole thing. You could get rid of the middleman that are the insurance companies yeah. and actually have a higher level or not eliminate, but heavily reduce. And then if you want to hold on to private insurance, you could still buy private insurance. You could still buy private insurance and still get like, whatever exceptional care you want. But let's talk a little bit more um, as we close about like who's organizing around this. Yeah. What, what collective power are we leveraging to change this? If you want to give us some resources for people to either follow you, your work, and, or these groups that are organizing, that would be wonderful. Just to begin that is that systems are, are always changeable. We see systems being changed constantly. So health insurance companies lobby to change the system all the time. There are powerful interests are constantly like making sure that the systems change in their favor. Health insurance companies and pharmaceuticals 
did a very, very good job inserting themselves into that process to ensure that the system would change in a way that benefited them. And they have record profits since the ACA was passed. And the folks passing the ACA, Obama and all the Democrats, and even the Republicans involved, were all people who had been supported by the healthcare industry in the, in the past, right? Their campaigns had been funded by the healthcare, by, by health insurers and by pharmaceuticals. So we know that systems are changeable. The way to change them in a way that benefits us and not profit motives of the healthcare industry is to organize, right? We have to use collective action. I can't change the system by myself but I think together we can. So there are a lot of people organizing for single payer healthcare. I definitely think Bernie Sanders has done a very good job mobilizing folks around that issue. I think it's one of the most important issues of our day, in my opinion. I think it's one of the things that kills probably the most Americans. Um, not having access to healthcare as a human right has killed probably more Americans than really anything else you can think of right now. Um, but there are definitely folks organizing. Locally, there is an organization called Put People First Pennsylvania that's doing great organizing work around the state of Pennsylvania um, to get single payer in PA. And I would say I continue to donate to the Bernie Sanders campaign and support the campaign. I will vote for him. I think that vote matters because even if he doesn't get the nomination, to show that there's a mandate for the things that he stands for and single payer is at the center of his platform. So I definitely think that that makes a difference. We can continue to sort of have our voices heard about this. I think that absolutely attending protests for single payer, continuing to engage online platforms, Twitter, there's a lot of good single payer move momentum on Twitter. How would people find the single payer uh, momentum on Twitter? There's like a single payer hashtag, like single payer healthcare, single payer or something. I don't think that we're going to get single payer without tremendous momentum from the bottom. So I think we have to fight for it. But I think it is possible. And especially if we do it state by state right now, there are states that have single payer. So it's not impossible for us to get it at the state level and to push the federal government in that way. Because I think once people see how effective a single payer system is, it actually erases all the resistance to it. I think the resistance comes from a place of not really understanding how beneficial it is for everyday people, you know? I love that. And how do people follow you if they want to um, just kind of listen to your mind and critique and um, are there any ways that people can stay in touch with you? So I am on Twitter, my uh, handle, it's at Sonia M. Rosen. That's my, my Twitter handle. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.